We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Ezra, so you can go ahead and be turning there to Ezra chapter 7. And while you're turning there, I want to just give you a little advance notice on something. Um, you know, it was not that many weeks ago we talked about the act of worship through giving. And as we, uh, part of in the sermon, we talked about being deliberate about that and how it's easy to have fallen off when we don't necessarily pass a plate. We're going to commit each, the first Sunday of each month to having what we call first fruits. And we're going to be deliberate about thinking, praying about, and potentially maybe even for you, deliberate in actually giving. So I mentioned that in advance because for some of you, you whether it's uh, you give digitally, whether you give a check, whether you give online, something along those lines. Uh, next week in particular, we're going to set up a particular portion of time to enable you to have that focus. So rather than surprise you next Sunday, we want to give you a little bit of a heads up on that. And we'll see each month as something that explains a little more, defines a little more, even hear some of the testimonies of how God uses our giving as an act of worship. Well, Ezra chapter 7. You know, whenever I was growing up in school, I remember in particular going to the cafeteria and they had these pictures up on the walls. And it talked about the food that we would eat and it made this statement. They would say, you are what you eat. And uh, kind of give you a visual as to what that looks like. You know, you eat a lot of ho-hos and ding-dongs and Snickers, you're going to look one way. As opposed to you're eating vegetables and things that have proteins and meats, you're going to look a different way. Because the body takes what it is that you have put into this mouth that you consume, brings it into this chemical factory, and begins to process it. And it takes certain nutrients out, provided you put nutrients in. And so what's true for the human body is also true for everyone's spirit and heart. There is a consumption that each one of us has to have. We're consuming certain things to infect our hearts and our minds, meant to feed us, and things that we want to take this life and we want to invest them in. And I don't want to just invest my life into just anything. I want to invest my life in the things that are going to be eternal, that are going to outlive me. Today, we're going to look at a man who understood this. This is how he lived. So again, Ezra chapter 7. Ezra's book is going to do something. He covers two specific time periods. And we've already looked at the first one. It's the first six chapters within the book. And it's there we saw a gentleman, his name was Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel came along with about 50,000 Jews when King Cyrus where the Jews had been exiled up in Babylon, King Cyrus gave this decree and said, y'all can go home now. 50,000 went with Zerubbabel in about the year 457 B.C. Uh, 59 years later, you've got somebody else that comes on the scene, and that's Ezra. So when we jump into chapter 7, you've got to realize there's this 57, 59-year gap somewhere in there in between those two chapters. Cyrus is no longer the king. There was another king after him named Xerxes, and now we've entered into yet another king whose name is Artaxerxes, who's now ruling over the kingdom. And as the Jews had come way back with Zerubbabel, at first there was this great optimism. Maybe some of you remember that, right? There's an excitement in all this. And there's this renewed vision. God has given us the land back. He was upset with us. He sent us away into exile, but now he has opened the door and we see his, his love upon us. So they're getting ready to come back. And yet, what started out in great optimism has kind of fizzled out over six decades. Things have changed. The spiritual zeal that these people initially had, it's really kind of cooled off. And so while the Jews did, in fact, finish building their temple, they really do much beyond that. 
their connection with God wasn't really established all that great. And so rather than be this big blessing in the world, the spiritual state has gotten pretty sloppy. And so as a result, you've got things like their city walls. They're still down in Ezra chapter 7. They don't have any walls. And to us, we may not think any big deal about that. But in that day and in that culture, that was a sign of disgrace on you and on your city. It was a reflection, your God is weak. If you don't have walls, you can't be protected and you can't be defended. They've had the chance to do it. They haven't done it. On top of that, worship, I mean, it's going okay, but I guess we could best describe it as meh. You know, we, we do a few sacrifices along the way. But the Levites, who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders, have not stepped up. They've not really taken their task of teaching the word to the people. And so as a result, what we're going to see later on, chapter 9 in particular, you're going to find folks who are going to live in disobedience to the word of God by intermarrying with people of different faiths. Now, what happens when you do that? That is a door for syncretism. It's okay if you marry Sally, who's worshiping an idol, and you're saying, I'm going to worship the Lord. Before long, you're going to be like Solomon. You're going to, your heart will be turned. Start to worship these other gods. And that's what put them into exile to begin with. So it's, it's a time where the spiritual energy and vitality and excitement that everybody had doesn't seem to be there quite as much. So as we get ready to look into this, let me just stop and ask. Y'all can't relate to that at all, can you? time where maybe spiritual vitality sort of wanes. You would love for God to be, you know, active and energetic in your life, but you have those times and those periods where it's sort of like, meh, you know, you don't really feel like you're seeing God at work. You're not really experiencing things that you would want to experience. Things have become somewhat boring. You've become somewhat spiritually indifferent, and before long, life just consists of you spending a little bit more time looking at the blue screen, waiting for the grave, and his turn with you. Now that I got you all depressed, when you're in those times, let me challenge you. That's a time where you need to start asking yourself some questions. What is it that would bring about a renewed sense of hope? A renewed sense of relationship and walk with God. A depth of relationship with him so that I can find his presence and that I can find his blessing in and on me. Well, Ezra chapter 7, that's the text you need in those days and in those times. And in this, we're coming to a place of great renewal. And the renewal that's going to come to the, to the people of God is going to enter primarily through this one man, Ezra, as he seeks to be faithful. Let that be a reminder. Can an individual make a difference? If God's behind that individual, yes, they can. And this is what he'll do. And so it's through this leader that you will find a man who comes with great knowledge, but he's also going to bring his great zeal. And he's purposed to invest in that which is eternal. Someone who can take the, the blessings of God, the stewardship that God will give him, and say, I'm going to take the stewardship, and because God's invested in me, he's going to get a return on this investment. So he's a man who takes the eternal values of God, and he lets them guide him to invest his life into that which God seeks to bless. And there's some different ways that he's going to do this in this chapter based on the different forms of stewardship that he's going to receive and invest in. So let's look at it together in Ezra chapter 7. Verse 1 begins this way. Now after these things, these things being chapters 1 through 6, and all that has happened in the past, 58, 59 years earlier. But now we continue in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. There went up Ezra, the son of Sariah, 
And then I'm not going to read the names, but you can go through verse 5 because we have this genealogy tracing him all the way back to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Now the name Ezra, his name means something. It stems or is derived out of the name Ahazariah, which means Yahweh has helped. Yahweh being the proper name of God. So the guy's name means God has helped. We are going to see how God's help and blessing come on him and upon his ministry, which in turn is going to not only bless him, it's going to bless the people that he's engaged with. So the help and the blessing, where does it all begin? Well, you see it there in the first five verses. It begins with his heritage. His genealogy is given here to show that Ezra comes out of the priestly line. You go all the way back to Aaron himself. And this is where he comes from. And so just by his birth, you're meant to find a sense of hope. That in, by seeing this Jewish lineage, the people of God are reminded, God hasn't forsaken us. He made a promise to Abraham. I will give you land, I will give you seeds or descendants, and I will make you a blessing. And so part of that descendants was going to be, and it was going to keep a priestly line. And so as they see the priestly line maintained, they are being reminded, God keeps his promises. God made that with Abraham, and he had to take them out of the land for a while, but he hasn't discarded them. He still has a plan and a work to do in their lives. And you look at the names that are listed there. Some of them are familiar to you. Some of them you have no idea who they are. They're you know, like an avatar. They don't, you, you can't make out who they are as an individual. But of the ones that we see, we see some good things in them. But you also take a little deeper and you find there's some not so good things with some of them. Aaron being one of them, one of the first idolaters the chief priest who made an idol. And so when I read something like that, I don't know about you, but that gives me a sense of hope that even though these kinds of things would happen with these people, God doesn't give up on his people. God will continue to work and bless his plan, and he will use the people who repent and continue to walk after him. I think I, I liken it in a similar way to the dedication that you just saw, that we just went through together. Parents committing to raise their children in the fear and in the admonition of the Lord. And that's aligning with God's purpose, that he's going to use the family, which we know from the word of God, and he's going to use the church, which we also know from the New Testament, to work and to build and to cultivate these new generations. God's purposes aren't going to be thwarted. He's going to keep his remnant. He's going to continue to work in and through his people. And he continues to help those who are going to put their trust in him. Every life God puts in your path, but especially in your home, is a stewardship. It is a stewardship. You don't get to manage the outcomes of their lives. That's, that's not your call. Here's what you can do. You can always continue to exert an influence through the faithfulness you exert to God and to them. That is the call as you seek Yahweh's help. Well, Ezra has been given something pretty extensive. He's been given a family line that is a priestly line. But he was also given a role as a result of that, and that's verse 6. Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. So a scribe here, a little bit different than the kind of scribes that we see in the New Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, a scribe could be a copier or a writer, uh, certainly of scripture, a communicator, but he could also be a military officer, a uh, communications person, a clerk, a secretary. Well, Ezra has been given a special stewardship and a special skill 
And that skill happens to be that he would know God's word. We're going to go a little bit more on that in a few minutes. Latter part of verse 6. The king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of the Lord was upon him. So again, this happens around around the spring of 458 B.C. Ezra takes this group of people. They leave Babylon. And if uh, this is Babylon and over here is Jerusalem, you kind of have to go up to go down because you've got to follow the river, the water source, to get there. And that's what he does. It takes him four months. Now, it isn't until chapter 8 that you find out there's only 1,500 people going with him. Zerubbabel had 50,000. Ezra gets 1,500. That's it. And of the 1,500, how many are Levites? Zero at first. Not a single one. Now remember, part of the reason of going back is to establish the worship of God in and through his temple. And only Levites can do that. You're now going to take a group of people in this new exodus, if you will, and you don't even have a priest on hand. And so one of the things Ezra is going to have to do is he's going to have to build up the priesthood, and that's exactly what he does. You know how he does it? Same way the church gets volunteers, tap on the shoulder. He goes to the Levites and he says, hey guys, we got a vision. It's great. You need to go. You need to come with us. And I've wondered, and the scripture doesn't necessarily tell us this, why wouldn't they be part of the first team to get up and go? Why wouldn't they do that? I personally can't help but think that there's a couple of reasons. Safety. You're in Babylon. Everything's predictable. You know what to expect. There's safety there. And you're established. Things are here. You don't have to take any risks. The problem in that is that's not what God called them to do. While they were exiles, God called them to live in the land and make it better. But when the exile was ended, they were meant to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Go back into the land. Go back and populate it. Be the blessing I've called you to be and get back into the sense of worship. And these haven't done it. So Ezra casts a vision and he calls. And you'll see later in chapter 8, he gets, I think it's 258 of them. Finally go, okay, we will go. But man, when I read something like that and I think, I come back to our day. This is one of the issues that we will always struggle with. Always struggle with. You and I are called to live as exiles in this world. We're living in this kingdom, in this world right now. But we're also living for another one that's coming. And part of living here means preparing for here. we got to be deliberate about that. And what a gift it is when living here we can experience safety. That's a gift we should give God thanks for. When we can be established, that is a gift. There is a hazard that can come with that gift. We forget the other kingdom. Our zeal for that kingdom cools off. And as a result of cooling off... Our lives become now about preserving our safety and preserving what we've established, and that becomes what we live for. And every single one of us is guilty of doing it. I'll be the first in line. And this is our reminder. No, God has called us to live for something higher. Ezra was remembering what was eternal. He was about it. He was deliberate. His plan, God's plan and purposes were that which was going to move him to action. And so he, along with these 1,500 others, would go 
and arrive. And then verse 10 shows us part of the reasons and the ways that God was with him. It says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. I love that. Ezra is this incredible man of resolve regarding the word of God. And through the word of God, we see three things in particular that he does that God will use to transform the nation. Here's the first one. He studies God's word. He studies it. God blesses the study of his word. Do not forget that. There is a blessing that comes with that. Because remember, in this life, you've only got two things that are eternal. The word of God and the souls of men. And that's it. Everything else will burn and be destroyed. That's all we have. That is eternal at least. And he's going to spend time in the word for the express purpose, as we'll see, of putting that word in his life as well as in the lives of others. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 says, How blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That word meditate, very interesting. It's pronounced Hagah. Now, think about that. When you meditate, what goes through your mind? You think quiet, peace, right? So thoughts can just kind of fill my mind. That's not what this word means. The word meditate means to mutter, to coo, to growl. The word is an onomatopoeia. Remember that from your uh, grammar classes? That's a word that's meaning is the same as what its sound is. A bee will buzz. The word buzz is an onomatopoeia because that's the sound the bee makes. Well, if you're going to meditate, you hagah, which means this. You're reading it softly to yourself, and it sounds like this when someone walks by. Hagah, 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 hagah. You're saying the word. It's going in through here, your eyes. It's coming out your mouth to then go back in to your own ears. That's the idea here, that you're putting time into it and really, you're not just speed reading your way through it. You're meant to capture what is being said. And this is what this guy does. He meditates. He studies. And he's going to consume that which God has says is true and is right and is authoritative for his life and everybody else's. So Ezra is a man who reads and who studies, who wants to know and understand. He is deliberate to understand it, as we'll see in a minute, so that he can be changed. And others can too. i got to stop right here and ask you, when you are reading the Bible, do you read to understand? We as a church, we're going through a Bible reading plan right now. A lot of you have joined us. If you haven't, feel free to join us now. Just go on the app, look under the block that says read, tap on it. we got a two-year reading plan. Feel free to uh, partner with us. If you've fallen behind, just skip to the present. Don't let that bring you down. Come on and join us. But here's one of the problems. A lot of times we read, but people don't understand. And let's be honest, sometimes the Bible is hard to understand. Can I get an amen? It, yeah, it is hard at times. It makes me think in the book of Acts. Philip walks up to the Ethiopian human. What are you reading? I'm reading Isaiah. What does it say? I don't know. I don't understand it. How can I unless someone helps me? Well, part of being helped is you studying, going to sources, looking at the Bible as a whole going to others, but you have to do the work. Note, note, note that word, 
the work of study. You've got to read that Bible in its context. You've got to read it in its time, in its place and culture, in its place within the Bible as a whole so you can get it. Asking yourself, is this history? Is this poetry? You read a little differently, don't you? Depending on what category it fits. Is this describing something? Or is this prescribing an action that we, I need to do? What is, this, what is it doing to me? And what is it calling and asking of me? And it can be very confusing at times. We're going through the book of Job right now in our Bible reading. And when you read Job's friends, sometimes you read and you go, you know, that sounds right. But people keep telling me that they're wrong. So is it right or is it wrong? And the answer is yes. There are some parts that they say that are true. And then there are other parts that have assumptions that are false. And you have to do the work of asking the right questions. Mortimer Adler, in his excellent book entitled How to Read a Book, said that reading is sort of like two people playing catch. And the author has a ball. And the author is throwing it to you. And your job is to catch it. Only it isn't a ball, it's ideas. The author is sending you ideas, and you're meant to catch it. And if you don't catch it, then you have to go back over it until you do catch it. But he says, but here's where we fail. We fail to remember that our job is to throw the ball back. We take the idea and present it back to the author. Well, how am I going to do that? I mean, there's pages in a book. He's not going to answer my question. Well, as you continue to read, you start to find out, is he answering the question? That's how you're going to wrestle with a text. You've got to learn how to ask questions so that you understand. And when it comes to your Bible, let me tell you something. You're not alone, all right? We have an embarrassment of riches out there that you can access. So many of them free, some of them you have to purchase, but an embarrassment of riches. i got a few that I just present to you right here. One of the websites I can recommend to you is a place called Bible.org. Tons of information about the uh, passages of Scripture. Then there's soniclight.com. You go there, and that is uh, one of my seminary professors. His name was Tom Constable. He spent 30-plus years taking and amalgamating all these different commentaries on passages of Scripture and then presenting that in a consolidated form, and it's free. That site has 33,000 hits per day across the world. As people just want to know, help me understand, and it's free to you. Um, another one, some of you may have heard of the Bible Project. You can find them online or you can go on YouTube, but they'll give you every book of the Bible and they'll put it in like this fun diagram and draw and explain what is happening in the book so that when you read it, you have an understanding of how it fits within the whole. And they've also got a series of videos on how to read and study the Bible. It's awesome. I highly recommend it. Go there and check it out, and it'll help equip you for the purposes of being able to learn how to read, that you might learn how to study, that you might learn how to interpret. But it demands something. you got to get your nose in the book. you got to be intentional to study it and to ask questions and talk with other people about it because we have no reasons at all for, for why we can't understand it, not without some work. Some other tools maybe that can help you. Max Anders has this great book, 30 Minutes, or um, I'm sorry, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible in Just 15 Minutes a Day. I'll give you just a broad overview. I've put Mortimer Adler's book up here. It isn't a Christian book, but it's one of the best tools in learning how to read effectively and, be, and get something out of it. But my favorite of all, which I've shared before, Howard Hendricks, How to Read a Book. Easy book to read. If you take one chapter a week, and a chapter is only about four to six pages, 
one chapter a week and you read that through and do the exercises for a year, you will know more about Bible study than 98% of the other Christians that are out there. It's a very effective tool. But you, like Ezra, have to set your heart on it. You've got to decide that you're going to study it. And I'll just remind you, if the Word of God's eternal, that's not a waste. Not one bit. I hope, ladies and gentlemen, you never recover from the proposition that God has purposed to speak by putting his words in letters in a language that you and I can understand and that he has handed it over and delivered it to us so that we can hear directly from him, his heart to us, what he thinks, what we need to know in this world, everything that is essential. I hope you never take that for granted and that we continue to hold on to it, to study and to learn. Now, there's a lot of you say, Jack, that's great. I'd love to. I ain't got a lot of time, though. It's just, it's hard for me to get around to this. Can I gently, maybe not gently, push back on this? I want you to do me a favor. Get out your phone. That's all right. Go ahead and get your phones out. little exercise. If you got an Android, here's what I want you to do. I think this is going to be right. I want you to power it up. I want you to go to settings. And once you go to settings in Android, I think there's one of the things that says uh, digital well-being. Tap on that and hold that screen. If you've got an Apple or an iPhone, I want you to go into uh, settings. Once you get to settings, find the one that says battery. And then once you've got battery, tap on that one. And then once you scroll to the bottom of battery. Now, for both of you, here's what I brought you to. I brought you to a place on your phone that shows you all the apps you've been looking at and how much time you've spent on them. It breaks it down in a percentage of how much time you spend on each app, but there's a little button there that says you can look at it in terms of hours, and it will tell you how many hours you've looked at your phone and what apps you've spent that time on. Tap the one that says the last seven days rather than the last 24 hours, and look at how much you average per day. I would be willing to bet most of you have hours on apps that are not essential. Meaning, they're not necessarily something that you're using to communicate with people and they're not necessarily GPS or something like that. Chances are you've got hours on things like everything from NFL podcasts to social media or whatever. If you don't have time, I just found it for you. You've got it. See, it's not an issue of time. It's an issue of priorities. And God says, I need that, I want that priority. And we are blessed when we do it. And for those of you that are young parents, my wife and I just went to go watch over our daughter and uh, help her out with her, her two little girls. And um, I, I, I got reacquainted with how busy your life is when you got two under two, uh, both in diapers and both high needs. And it got tough. And I'll tell you what I discovered. They had these little children's Bible books. I got a twofer out of it. I sat them down, I'm reading them, or at least the, t the one who's almost two. I'm reading her these stories. I'm getting something out of it as well. So there's scripture, there's ideas, there's books. They're out there, folks. If you don't know what they are, you want to find out, talk to my wife, Karen, or grab Regina, or grab some of these other moms that have young children and ask them. They know the resources. Get them. Start investing in them. It's not wasted time. What I'm saying is... It, Bible reading doesn't only count when you have a New American Standard. Sometimes it's going to be in a living Bible, a children's Bible, and God will use it.
But if the young ones are in the house, invest in them with this word and you'll get something out. All right, that's the first thing Ezra does. That's the longest. Hang with me another minute. The next thing he does, he studies it for the purposes of obeying it. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp into my feet. Uh, the Living Bible used to translate that is a flashlight. And a lot of people felt like, oh, that sounds a little disrespectful. I think, no, it actually communicates very good. Because a flashlight's purpose is to shine the light in front of you so you know where to go. The idea being you can obey. Romans tells us that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that happens through scripture. James 1.22 says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers deceiving your own selves. James also goes on to speak a little bit. He says, you know, going to the words like looking in a mirror. And you look in there and all of a sudden it shows you a lot of things. And uh, if you're like me, you go in first thing in the morning and you look in that mirror, it's not a pretty sight. Eyes are baggy, hair's all messed up. I have an aunt who used to make the comment. She says, I can't go out in town until I put my face on. And so what would she have to do? She'd have to get up. you got to clean up to then get on the makeup. And then she could go up to wherever it is that she needed to go. Well, when you're reading the word, you're meant to do the same thing. It shows you things about yourself, but it's not for the intent of you going, oh, and walking away. You need to obey to be changed. Anybody can read Job 19.17 which says, my breath is offensive to my wife. And you read that and you go, hmm, oh, that's deep. Hmm. Ten minutes of thinking about it, an application. Get scope from the grocery store. My wife will thank me. And your wife will appreciate that, I'm sure. Um, that's not the purpose of what's being said there. It's not about personal hygiene. That verse is about suffering and about those closest to you not even wanting to be around you in that time when you need them the most. How do you learn that? You study it. You think it through. We need to get the tools to get our study to get it right. Well, after studying it, to then do it, there's a third step, and that is he's then going to turn around and teach it. Folks, when God gives you a truth, i got news for you. It's a stewardship. It's not just for you. It's for others. It's for you to then turn around and give to others and help them. You're meant to pass this along. Because again, if it's the word of God and it's eternal, then it's meant to be impressed upon the souls of humans. And you get to be part of the process of receiving it to then impress it onto these other souls. I've had people before, after preaching a sermon, they go, well, Jack, how'd it go? What'd you think? And I said, I have no idea what anybody thinks. But I sure got a lot out of it. <laughs> because nobody will get more out of a text than the teacher. And you know why that is. Because the teacher has to be able to explain it. And then a teacher has to start thinking, what are the problems that folks are going to have? What are the hurdles that they're going to have? What are the communication issues that we're going to have? And you're having to look at it from every single angle to study it. And so it's important to teach because it takes you to a whole different level. Now, some of you go, Jack, James has a verse, he says something like, uh, let not many of you become teachers, you know, so I'm not one of those teachers. Well, can I challenge that? Jesus said that part of discipleship is that you're going to turn around and you're going to teach others to obey. So which is it? I don't think James is saying you can't teach. He's saying be sober, take it serious, learn it, 
Because what you're going to pass on is going to affect other people and let it be in accordance with truth. In many ways, you know, life is a lot of times, it's a lot like a minefield, isn't it? You're walking along and then all of a sudden somebody gets blown up here and blown up there. But what God has done is taken this little minesweeper and gone throughout the world and he's marked it. That's a hazard. Don't go there. This is a path. That's clear. Let's stay clear of this. And because you have the word, you get to navigate through that and not only just survive, but thrive. That's what he wants. So as you get these truths, teach them. I don't mean you got to teach, take a ridge class downstairs. For some of you, it's going to be in your home. Sit down with the people around you and teach them. Y'all eat supper at night? Oh, I hope you do. Please do. Eat supper together at night. That's one of your best times you've got to sit down as a family and talk about life, but you can bring the word to bear. You can talk about how you're applying it, how you're struggling with it, and it goes back and forth. And that's what you're meant to do as you live it to then pass it on and struggle with it together. I got a lot more to go, but I ain't got time. We'll have to pick up at another time with that. Let me leave you with this. If the word of God is, in fact, eternal, don't forsake it. And if I'm the devil, here's what I'm going to do. I know it has a power. And I know that if you get that power, God is going to use you in mighty ways. So here's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to distract you. Get you to where you don't look into it all that much. And when you do, you just kind of tip your hat to it and walk away. And I'm going to show you these other shiny things that are razzle-dazzle, that are more exciting, at least in the moment, and pull you away that way. Ezra set his heart. He was deliberate. He was intentional. We, you want to see renewal? You invest in the eternal. Here and here.